Well, good morning. It's great to have you here this morning. My name is Bob Burns, and I'm here on staff with BP at Seven Hills. And I love it when BP says on Sunday mornings, you are here this morning for some reason, but God has his reasons for bringing you here too. That whatever that is, you're not here by accident. And uh, already this morning, I know that besides the fact that I'm preaching, I'm not here by accident because uh, uh, just being able to participate in the worship so far has been very, very meaningful for me. I really appreciated the things that Steve shared about his background, his family. Our family has just gotten into the experience of adoption. We just, uh, on March 4th, our little baby girl, Annabelle, Annabelle Arabella Rose, uh, was born and uh, uh, came into our family through adoption, and we're just so, so blessed with her. Uh, so it's been a, a meaningful thing for me personally to listen to Steve and hear him talk and reflecting back upon his experience, his brother's experience, and, uh, and to be thinking about this whole adoption thing. In, in reflecting on this sermon this week, which is dealing with a new identity, which is another way of saying the fact that we're adopted into God's family, I was reminded of uh, an experience of one of my mentors. Uh, his name is Russ Cadle. This is a picture of Russ now. Uh, and, um, but uh, Russ was, uh, I was involved with a youth ministry when he was the youth pastor. And uh, I'll never forget the story of the experience that um, he was going to be taking a group of people from the church to the Middle East, to Israel, to visit Israel. Now, this is the first time Russ traveled overseas. And so he had to apply for a passport. And in order to get a passport, you know, you have to pull together personal information and documents, and he had to have his birth certificate. And uh, he's 34 years old at this point and married with a couple of kids. And, um, and so, but he was born in Virginia. We were in Maryland, in a church in Maryland, and he was born right over the river in Virginia. So he just went over to the courthouse over in Virginia to get a copy of his birth certificate. And he went there, just kind of standard operating procedure, and gave him his name, Russ Cadle, and they looked, and they looked, and they looked, and they looked, and they looked. And finally they said, I'm sorry, Mr. Cadle, we don't have any birth certificates here for you. And he said, well, I know I was born here. And, I, you know, this is where I've lived. And, and, and he said, well, we don't have anything. So he said, well, I'll have to look in this. So he went and visited his parents. And he said, Mom, Dad, I went to, to the courthouse. And I couldn't find my birth certificate there. Can you help me understand? And they looked at each other and they finally said, well, son, you have to know that, that uh, we're not your biological parents. Your biological mom, his mother said, is actually my sister, your aunt. And she had just passed away about two years before that. And, uh, and she became pregnant with her fiancé uh, at the very end, of, uh, towards the end of World War II. And he, uh, he went overseas in the war and he was killed. And so she was left uh, being pregnant with you. And so we just talked through this together as a family, and we said, we want to adopt you. And uh, Russ said, it's interesting because every summer they would send me uh, up to West Virginia to spend a month with my aunt, who discovers his, his, his mother. And he said, we always had this unique bond and relationship. I never really understood it. Um, but, he, but he looked at his dad in this conversation. And you can imagine how this hit him. 34 years old. 
And he looked at his dad and he said, Dad, why didn't you ever tell me that I was adopted? And his dad looked at him and he said, Son, you're my son. I love you. I've never thought about you being adopted. I just thought about you being my son. You see, told you, Steve. <laughs> Adoption isn't just a legal process. It's an emotional process. It's physical. It's spiritual. It's mental. It's a whole family process where that child is brought into the family, not as a second-class citizen. You're my son, Mr. Cato said. You're not a second-class child. You're my boy. You see, this is how God, according to the Scriptures, views us as His children. Adoption is the work of God. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, where He makes us full and complete members of His family. How does God do this? Well, Steve already read this passage where it speaks of Jesus coming into the world to His own, to His own people, and His own people didn't receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, it says, to all who believed in His name, He gave the right, and that's a legal term, He gave the right to become children of God. So later, John reflects in his epistle, and he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? that we should be called the children of, of God. And then he underlines it, he says, and so we are the children of God. Paul the Apostle, you know Paul is more of the theologian type, and he reflects on the, the depth and the breadth of this. He writes, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And you probably know that term, Abba, is a, in, the, in the Middle East is the term for daddy. It's the term only a child can use for his father, her father. And he says the Spirit of God comes into us and we cry out through the Spirit, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself then bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children then we're also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And then Paul goes on in Romans 8 and he says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption as sons. The idea there is that we've been adopted, but our full, the fullness of our adopted experience hasn't come to us yet. The redemption of our bodies is when we'll experience that. And so Paul says, for in this hope we, we are saved. We were saved. And so what we're going to see this morning as we consider this idea of adoption of, of our lives into God's family, we're going to see three things this morning. That the adoption delivers us from our past. It radically changes us from our past. And it it, it changes our present, and it gives us hope for the future. 
So that's where we're going. The first thing we want to look at is the fact that adoption has delivered us from our past. You know, I grew up uh, in a church-going family. I can't remember not going to church. But the churches that we went to were just kind of a place where you go and you, you, you just kind of go and do church, if you know what I mean. And, and I never really heard about the love of God through Christ in a way that was meaningful to me until, until I attended a junior high activity. A friend of mine said, listen, we're going to be getting together and doing some stuff together in my junior high group. Would you like to come? And I asked my mom, and she said, sure. So, so I went to the junior high activity, and, and, um, and we played around. We, you know, we, 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 we got down on our knees and played uh, knee football in this big barn with, with straw on it. And then, and then we went and played capture the flag, had a huge capture the flag game. Then the, the sun went down, we got together. There was a big bonfire, and we had hot dogs and other, other stuff. And then the man got up, and he began talking to us. And he talked about his best friend. He said, I got to know my best friend when I was your age in junior high school. And then he went on and said, my best friend and I were together all the way through junior high and high school. And when I was playing sports, he was there to support me and encourage me. And then we went off to college and we went to the same college. And uh, we, we, we interacted together talking about things like majors and what are we going to do. And he said, I fell in love and my friend was there to talk with me and counsel me about getting married to my wife. And, uh, and he finished by saying, and my best friend's name is Jesus. I'd never heard of the idea that Almighty God could be your friend. You could have a personal relationship with Him. Like I have a personal relationship with my, my brother or another friend. I'd never heard of that idea before. And it's, it's totally absent in all other world religions, if you look at Islam, the, the attitude that people in Islam have towards God is one of deep and profound awe. But God is out there, out there, not available. And God is going to do whatever God's going to do, and there's nothing that we can be involved with in that. He is wholly other. There's no sense that He is both infinite and personal. If you look at at Buddhism, or if you look at Hinduism, God isn't even considered as a, as a person. It's, it's, God, is, God is an ethereal being out there that you somehow come in contact with and become one with, but, but there's no sense of personhood. There's no sense of relationship. And yet in Christianity, we learn that to all who receive Him, who, who believed in His name, to them He gives the right to become children of God. This is radical. You see, God could have made us spiritually alive. Excuse me, I'll go back. Um, hello, <laughs> where am I? God could have made us spiritually alive and not make us his children. God could have made us right legally before him and said, you have now legal standing before me, but not make us his children. But the scriptures teach that his love for us extended to us in such a way 
that he not only wanted to make us right before him, and he not only wanted to make us spiritually alive before him, but he wanted to make us his sons and his daughters. So there's a question for us to grapple with this morning. Some of you here this morning are just like I was. The idea of a personal God who wants to have relationship with you is foreign to you. Maybe you've gone to church all your life like I did. But the idea of a personal relationship is absent. What I want you to know this morning is that Almighty God, even today, right now, is offering to you the opportunity Extending to you, desiring to you, to have you be His child. And later, we're going to come to our family dinner together. The Lord's table. And we're going to have a prayer that's available that I'm going to encourage you to review, to think about. I want to give you time and space here. But I want you to consider, what does it mean for you to have a a real and personal and intimate relationship with God? That's being offered to you this morning. To as many as received Him, to them He gives the right to become children of God. So later on we'll have an opportunity before we take the Lord's Supper to reflect upon that and for you to even have a prayer that we're going to give to you to, to think about and consider as a prayer for you to pray so that you might have a relationship with Him that's more than just out there but a personal relationship with your Father who is in heaven. Now once a person comes into a relationship with the living God, we find that adoption changes our present. It literally comes in and radically turns us around. It says in Romans chapter 8, verses 15-17, to 17, you've received the spirit of adoption as a son by whom we cry, Abba, Father, And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and of children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. Now, as I was studying this this week, I came across one book where the author literally came up with with 12 privileges that the Bible records, privileges of being children of God. This passage gives us four of those privileges. Let's look at them very quickly. We can approach God as a good and loving Father. He's no longer out there in some distance, but He's now our Daddy that we can talk to, that we can pour our hearts out to, that cares for us. We also see that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a down payment. The Spirit comes into our lives. Literally, the Scriptures say the Spirit indwells our bodies. And then we cry out, Abba, because we've been given this down payment. The Spirit is of the first fruits, Paul calls it. What do you mean first fruits? That means we get the blessing of, his, of our relationship through the Spirit, but it's only the beginning. And the, and the future is going to give us more, which we'll see in our third point. But we have the first fruits of the Spirit. It says in this passage, we're fellow heirs with Christ. That means we're fully vested as children. We are going to receive a huge inheritance. The inheritance of Christ, the Scriptures say, is our inheritance when we're with Him forever. And we are heirs of the living God. And then it says we have the privilege of suffering with Christ. How does that that fit in? Inevitably, 
Followers of Jesus are counterculture. It says in, in the Scriptures that those who are not followers of God, those who are not children of God, it describes them as sons of disobedience, children of wrath. Remember, Jesus was even once talking with a group of Pharisees, religious professionals, who didn't believe in him. And he said, you are just like your father. And they said, well, we have one father, that's God. And he said, no, your father is the devil. And so the Scriptures teach that when we become believers, there will be an aspect of suffering. Sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's social, sometimes it's literally physical, like our brothers and sisters who just a few weeks ago were gathering together in their college ministry to pray together in Kenya, and terrorists ran in and shot them all while they were in their prayer meeting. We don't know exactly how the suffering is going to be for us, but what Paul says is that's a privilege that we have as children of God. Four privileges that we're given. Now, interestingly enough, there's a challenge that comes with adoption. As, as we've moved into this experience as a family, we've been looking at different books and things. There's a very helpful book called On Adoption. Not the most creative title in the world, but a uh, but really helpful book, and it talks about the fact that adopted children have to, be, have to negotiate the reality of their adoption throughout their life, from their youngest days all the way through. They have to negotiate and renegotiate it, rethink about it. What's the implications here? What's it like? And different children and, and, and teenagers and adults negotiate that in different ways. Steve shared a little bit about the difference between he and his brother. We see this happens. Every person negotiates this idea of the fact that they're adopted in different ways. And instead of getting into details about that, I thought I'd share with you a couple of stories of friends of mine. This is the Wickland family. The Wicklands live in Texas now, and you can see that they have two adopted daughters, um, Bailey and Maddie. And uh, interestingly enough, they were adopted at the age of two and three quarters. Uh, Bailey and Maddie were both in the same uh, orphanage in, uh, in um, the Philippines. And uh, Denise and Michael went over there, and they adopted both of them at the same time. And this was a really good orphanage. They were cared for, they were loved, they were held, they were affirmed, they were well-fed, they were well-clothed, their needs were taken care of, emotionally their needs were taken care of. So it was a really positive experience as far as the quality of care that they received before adoption. After adoption, of course, Denise and Michael took them as their daughters, and they never thought of them any differently than that. But, but I asked uh, this week, what challenges have the kids experienced as they have negotiated uh, their adoption? And, and Denise said to me, you know, the, the biggest thing they've dealt with, and we've had to face it uh, throughout their lives, is the fear that they have that we might leave them. It's not a rational fear. They know that we're, they're our daughters. They know that we care for them. We've never done anything to give them a sense that, that they may be abandoned, and yet they, they've both felt this anxiety about the fact that they might be left. Understandable. Part of that negotiating their adoptive experience. Another family, uh, Andrew and Lisa Vandermoss. Andrew was uh, Janet's and my pastor when we were in St. Louis for most of our time there. 
you can see that they have two biological children and they have uh, five adopted kids, uh, three African-American girls and two boys. The girls were adopted at birth. Uh, literally within a day or two after their birth, they were adopted by the Vandermosses, and they've never known any difference. Uh, they've never known any different place to be. And uh, as I talked with, with Andrew and Lisa, they said, you know, uh, the girls have had times of, you know, typical times of growing up and issues and challenges and sometimes concerns about, a little concerns about the fact that they may be abandoned, but, but nothing dramatic. But he said that the two boys... The two boys were adopted, both together. They're brothers. Um, their father was killed in, in a, a drug fight. Their mother is, been in, in prison, is in prison and has been in prison for most of their life. They bounced around from one foster home to another. Um, uh, they've been abused in various ways. And then at age 12 and 13, Andrew and Lisa adopted them. And it's interesting, as I talked, Andrew said, you know, they know that they're our children. They know that we love them. They've taken on our names. We actually changed their names at their request when they were adopted. But both of the boys still have a hard time receiving us. They have a hard time believing that we love them. They have a hard time accepting our love. And lots of times, what our experience with them is feeling like, you know, come here but stay away because of all of the pain and all of the hurt and the rejection and the struggles that they went through before the adoption took place. He said, we're assuming that for the rest of our lives together, we're going to be negotiating that challenge of making sure they know we love them and yet also the pain and the experience that they have of wondering if we really do. It's just part of the process. So you see, developmentally, there's a spectrum of how children adjust to this process of adoption. The sophisticated term for it is attachment disorder. It's the challenge of forming trust relationships because of difficulties with primary caregivers in childhood. Now, sometimes the longer a child it takes for a child to be adopted, the more difficult a child has uh, uh, forming trust relationships, but that's not always the case. Every child negotiates these things differently, but most adopted children have some struggle or some issue of attachment disorder. Why are you bringing that up, Bob? Because of this. We as children of God, though we have been fully accepted by the Father, though we have been made heirs with the Son, though we are not second-class citizens, we as children of God often live as orphans. We often have a hard time with our attachment to our Father in Heaven. It's not because of anything He is doing or not doing to care for us, but often it's because of our backgrounds, our experiences, our families. We often make our Father in Heaven into the image of our parents. And the struggles and the issues that we dealt with with our parents, we foist upon Him. Or other experiences of rejection or other struggles we've had. Now some people grow up in a Christian home and they've never known anything different than the love of God the Father for them. And they've, and they've grown up in a secure home and the issue of, of spiritual attachment disorder 
is not as big. But for many of us, we've grown up in the context where for years we had no idea what God was like. And for us, we are still processing, and we'll always be processing, trying to understand the love of the Father has for us. And the Scriptures would say to us that first, we are full sons and daughters. So if I ask you the question, do you know that you're a child of God? Your response to me would be, yes, I know that. But if I were to ask you the question, do you feel like you're a child of God? Many of us struggle with that feeling that we're accepted and cared for us. How do we remedy that? The same way that a child in an adoptive home remedies it. By watching and observing and learning and listening and seeing the consistency of the love of their parents for them. And slowly over a period of time, learning what it means to be accepted and loved. I'm married to a wonderful woman. I love her to death. But she grew up in a home where she rarely could experience the love of her father. And her own admission to me was, it took me 10 years of being married to you to really begin to believe that you love me. Friends, we are loved by our Father in heaven. We are accepted by Him. But we have to work in our hearts and our minds. That's what the Scriptures call having our minds remade from within. Paul says, dedicate your bodies as a living sacrifice so that you not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of the Spirit. This is a lifelong experience to not only learn that we are loved by Him, but to feel that we are loved by Him. That's why He has sent His Holy Spirit. This is a process for us to work on, to pray over, to read the Scriptures, to open our souls and to ask the Father, help me to believe your love for me. That I am not a second-class citizen. And then to learn to live as though you're not an orphan, but that you're accepted as a child. The third area Oh, just an underline from 1 John 3.1. Adoption provides a hope for the future. Now, most of us see the end game of our Christian life as going to heaven. And though heaven is a wonderful place and it's filled with glory and grace, I'm going to see my Savior's face and all that, heaven's not the end game. Heaven is not the end game. I've used this this, uh, this passage before. But read it again. Romans chapter 8. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. You know, there's um, a picture that I've used before that I don't have available here this morning, but you've seen the four panels of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. The new heavens and the new earth is the end game. The end game is, even those who are in heaven right now, 
They're waiting for Jesus to return again and to create the new heavens and the new earth, and they're going to receive renewed bodies. And if we're still alive when Jesus comes back, our bodies are going to be renewed. And we're going to have the new heavens and the new earth and new good work to do and healthy relationships and no more pain and no more sorrow and fulfillment in all that we do and all relationships that we have. That's the end game. And so when Christians cry out, Maranatha, they're not crying out, Lord, take me to heaven, as beautiful as that will be. They're crying out, Lord, return. Bring your kingdom in. And when he brings his kingdom in, the full hope and full redemption and full inheritance that has been promised to us will be given to us. And that's why the Scriptures teach that this is the hope for which we are saved. This world is not my home. But this world is going to be renewed so that we can have a new life together with Him. So, in conclusion, before we have the Lord's Supper, I ask the question, do you have a personal relationship with God? Do you know God personally? That's available to you this morning. You can know this morning that you're a child of God. And again, we'll be praying that way in a moment. But if you're already a child of God, do you live like a child or do you live like an orphan? Do you feel like you're a child of God? And where is your hope? Is your hope in getting through your exams? Sure it is. Hope in graduating? Of course there's a hope in that. But the deep, profound hope of the believer is Jesus' return. New heavens and a new earth and new bodies to be with Him. And that's what this meal is all about. Jesus understood that when He left to go back to be with the Father, we needed constant reminder of our sonship, of our daughtership, that we're loved by Him. And so He instituted the supper for many reasons, but one of which was to remind us of His love until He comes. Another one was to allow the Holy Spirit to confirm within our hearts that we are children of God because that's what we are. And so on the night which Jesus was betrayed, He took bread. And He said, this bread is, the, is, is my body and is broken for you. And every time you eat this bread, He said, I want you to remember that I have died to make you my child. After the supper, he took the cup and he poured out into the cup the wine and he said, this, this, wine is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he went on to say, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do it in remembrance of me until I come again. And as you do that, the Spirit of God will minister to your soul to re-emphasize His love for you. Just like Steve's mother sends that letter to him every year saying, I love you. I love you. He gives us this meal and he says, I love you. 
If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you to this table, not because you deserve it, but because before the foundation of the world, the Father put His love upon you and said, you are my child. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you to pray. Consider praying this prayer that we'll leave up here just for a few moments before the music starts playing. Consider praying this prayer. And if you do pray this prayer this morning, I want you to know you're invited to this table. And if you don't pray the prayer this morning, we don't want you to feel excluded. As a matter of fact, if you want to come up and walk and watch the people of God as they take the meal and then walk back with them, that would be fine. Or if you'd rather just sit at your seat, that would be fine too. But let me encourage you, do not take the meal if you're not part of the family. But we invite you this morning, if, if you want to have the Lord's table with wine, both the table down here and the table up uh, at the top of the stairs is available for you. If you'd rather use grape juice, the table over here and the table at the top of the stairs is available for you. But Jesus says to you this morning, this is my body. This is my blood. Remember me every time you do this. Remember that you're my child and do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this family meal that you've prepared for us. And that in this piece of bread, in this wine or grape juice, you are declaring again to us your care and commitment to us, our adoption, our acceptance our full acceptance. Lord, help us not only to understand this, but to feel this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We invite you at your time when you want to, to get up and to go and take the meal of the Lord.